I think we can all lend our amen to that last line, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. In some senses, we come together to worship week in and week out because we feel it. And yet by grace, we are bound again to our God and King. If you would remain standing and open your Bibles to John chapter 4, as we continue our study, John's Gospel. John chapter 4, picking up in verse 27, and we'll read down through verse 42. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word, and they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, thank you for this, your word. It is light and life which we need. Lord, may it be convicting to us and a balm to those who need it. Lord, shape us by your Holy Spirit and your word today more and more into the image of you, Christ, our Savior and King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. How important is it to listen? Really listen. How vital is it to, to really be heard? Last week we saw the evangelism of Jesus on display. Listening. Really hearing what was being said. And responding with wisdom and grace. Even in the midst of his own weakness, his being tired and weary, Jesus opened his heart. He was vulnerable with this woman 
by the well. He listens to her. He hears the subtext of what she's saying. He listens and hears, oh, she's thirsty. She's deeply thirsty. Confusion ensues, but Jesus doesn't stop. He doesn't stop listening. He doesn't stop interacting with her. He moves this woman along a path and eventually reveals the substance of her real thirst. No, you're really thirsty for living water. All these things will never satisfy fully. When she's finally ready, she says, yeah, give me, give me this living water. Then he does this about face, you remember? He does the strange thing. He says, go call your husband. She says, I don't, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You have, you've had five and the one you have now is not your husband. He's revealing the substance of her true thirst, her, her real thirst. He reveals how much he knows about her life and telling her she's exactly right. She has no husband. Then they have this interaction about the, um, the, the seat of worship and all this other um, interludes. And the whole time Jesus is listening and, and processing it, and it concludes simply Jesus telling her, I who speak to you am he, that is the Messiah. It's an astounding reality in John's gospel. Jesus very clearly putting his identity out there. He doesn't do that much at all. He's concealing that for his hour is not yet come. But to this woman by the well, he reveals himself. We talked about this last week too, how how powerful is shame? What does it take to overcome shame? Here, this thirsty woman is coming to the well in the middle of the day because she is living in shame. She knows her predicament. Shame produces fear of God and fear of other people. We see this even in the garden. Adam and Eve hide from God, not doing what they're supposed to do, not tending the garden, not expanding Eden. We see them hiding from God and from one another because they are in shame. I came across this quote this week by Kurt Thompson. He says this, quote, shame is not just a consequence of something our first parents did in the Garden of Eden. It is the emotional weapon that evil uses to corrupt our relationships with God and each other and disintegrate any and all gifts of vocational vision and creativity, end quote. I love that quote because it shows how expansive shame can be. It's exactly what's going on with this woman. Shame is a weapon impacting our relationship with God and with one another. And I love that he adds this vocational creativity. It robs us. What does it take to undo shame? We see it right here in the words of Jesus, a Messiah who fully knows you and has come to rescue you. 
Woman, believe me, I am the the Messiah. So what is this going to look like? How will this address her shame? We're going to see what happens in this text. Everything is out in the open now. No more secrets. What will this radically do to this woman? What What will it do in our life? We'll approach our text this way, a shameless gathering, a teachable moment, and a fruitful harvest. First, a shameless gathering. What's this woman going to do? So we said something last week about the, the, the breakdown in the relationship between Jews and Samaritans in this very unlikely situation. And Jesus has revealed himself to her. This scene, the disciples come back. Last week we saw that they were gone and they had this whole conversation about thirst. Well, the disciples were off getting lunch, right? They come back to the well, they have lunch. And we read this in 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said to him, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? This too sheds light on the beauty of Jesus' conversation with this woman because of the radical nature of the conversation. We already saw that it caught the woman by surprise last week, and the disciples even, they don't get it. They marvel, just like Nicodemus marveled at the teachings of Jesus. The disciples here marvel at what he is doing, at his interaction with this shameful woman. What in the world? They don't ask the question. The disciples don't get it. They don't have a clue. In this day, it was shameful for a rabbi to teach a woman. It was considered a waste of time. You could be doing better things like studying the Torah. Don't you need to be memorizing the Old Testament? You don't need to be teaching a woman. It's a waste of time. The disciples marvel at the, this conversation is going on. They don't ask the woman, what are you seeking? They don't even ask Jesus, why are you talking to her? It's it's clear that they're stunned. It's like they come back with sandwiches and all their mouths just drop open. Look at Jesus at the well talking to this woman. John moves away from the disciples to focus Again on the woman. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. Why does he give us this detail? This water jar. Why why does he point out that she left this water jar there and went away? Because she got it. She got the lesson of Jesus. He he told her last time, we saw this last week, hey, you're going to keep drawing water out of this well week in and week out, day in, day out, and you're still going to be thirsty. She got it. She leaves this water jar because she has living water now. She has living water and she leaves and goes away into town. And we're going to see what she is doing there. She leaves behind what is empty to go announce what is now full. Verses 28 and 29, she left the water jar in haste to go to the people and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
What a remarkable way to share the good news. We first met her at this well at noon precisely to avoid people. She was here to be alone. She she didn't want to be with the other people from town. And here we have her leaving the reason she was coming to the well and going back to the town. She has been transformed. She goes to the very people that she was wanting to avoid. Notice the seeds of faith. I think we see two of them here. First, she announces, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Christ is coming to break down her shame. He went to the heart of her sin. He showed her her spiritual thirst. He didn't avoid it. He didn't back away from it. When I hear her issuing this call to the community, people who know her reputation, I hear her saying something like this. He knows everything bad that I've ever done, and he talked to me anyway. He knows me fully, and yet he did not despise me. She uses hyperbole, everything I ever did, which really what Jesus knew is the precise worst parts of her. And she considers that all of her identity. He he knows all of me, and he does not despise me. He talked to me. I think this gets at the core of what every single one of us here need. We need to be fully known, but that's not enough. It's easy to be fully known, the, the good versions and the bad stuff, and then have the person walk away. Have you ever felt that kind of rejection? When you're really known, like how you really are, you're known um, deeply and intimately and then feel rejection? That's not what she's talking about. I think she's saying he, he knows everything about me and he didn't reject me. He loved me. What a core tenet of the gospel. What a core truth of who Jesus is and what he has come to do for people like you and me. Do you know that he still knows every single thing that we have ever done? And he has not rejected us. You say, how can we know he hasn't rejected us? Look at his life, his sacrificial death, the glory of the resurrection. That's how he knows. I think this, again, is the core of what all of us are looking for. We want to be known and not rejected. We want to be known deeply and we want to be loved. This is what living water does. This is why it satisfies so deeply. Fully known and fully loved. An endless font that wells up within us and spills over into the lives of others. Second seed of faith, I think we see here, is the simplest form of evangelism. Can this be the Christ? Come with me and meet him. She goes into town announcing curiosity. This form of evangelism or calling someone to Christ isn't rooted in her certainty. It's not a theological plea, it's even in the form of a question. 
She simply wants to take others to meet Jesus, believing that he may be the Christ that she needs and she longs for, and so do they. Several lessons here. Powerful lessons in evangelism. Jesus being willing to have an unlikely conversation with an unlikely person and lends his ear. This woman giving us a powerful lesson. If you don't know what else to to say to somebody, just show them Jesus. Speak of him. This shame-filled woman in the middle of the day is now going into town, bringing others to the Messiah. So we have this shameless gathering. Next, we have this teachable moment. It's almost like this sandwich where John wants to to go back to the disciples and say, hey, look look how how Jesus is going to deal with his disciples at this moment. Look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. You see, last week it was... There was a lot of misunderstanding from the woman about what Jesus was talking about, living water. This week, it's the disciples' turn to misunderstand. They still think the number one priority is lunch. Jesus, you've got to be hungry. We, We went and got a bag of food. Eat. They misunderstand. They don't see with the Lord's eyes what's going on in this encounter. They believe this whole encounter is just about the physical realm. They don't see new birth happening. They don't hear the wind of the Spirit blowing. Unlike Jesus, their priority isn't yet the kingdom coming. It's still the things of this life. They're worried about lunch. Chapter 6, we'll see after Jesus feeds the 5,000, the, the crowds track him down across the sea looking again for more food, and Jesus corrects them and says this, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. I think in short, that's the exact lesson he's given his disciples here. Stop worrying about lunch. So if it's not lunch that he's worried about, what is he worried about? His priorities are very... um, Crosswise, they, they, They're deeply contrasted to that of his disciples, verses 32 through 34. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples said to him, they looked at each other, did somebody else bring him food? Again, these layers of misunderstanding with the woman last week and the layers of misunderstanding with the disciples this week. Did somebody else get sandwiches? Why did we just go into town if somebody else brought him food? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Totally different priority in life. It's like shift your focus away from those things and and focus on the kingdom. Jesus was ever patient with the woman, she's going to, be, he's going to be very patient with his disciples, explaining to them this mission, this work that he's been called to do. This is my food, to obey my Father. 
This work is an important theme in John. We're going to see it come up again and again. Jesus will say that his works are the very works of God. And this, in fact, is what's going to make some people so mad that they want to kill Jesus. He's equating himself with God. Absolutely he is. Jesus is saying, what fills me up? What gives me energy is to do the will of my Father. This lesson that Jesus is offering his disciples was the very lesson God was teaching Israel in this Old Testament lesson, Deuteronomy 8.3. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. And your exhaustion, see something greater. See God providing. Jesus says, I have food to eat. I think we, we, we all kind of understand what he's saying. Have you ever been so engrossed in an activity, a project, at work, maybe at home, maybe a piece of music or some art that you're working on? Have you ever been so engrossed in it that you didn't have time to eat? You didn't even think about eating. That's exactly what he's saying. Jesus is totally engrossed in joy, in life-giving joy that he's not even thinking about what's for lunch. It's exactly what he's doing here. He's engrossed in kingdom enterprise. He's engrossed in seeing this shame-filled woman being given life. He is watching new birth and he is Full of joy. He's utterly engrossed with it. He is watching the wind blow. And like he did with the woman at the well, he shocks the, his disciples into truth. Look at verse 35. Do you not say there yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Again, this misdirection, they're talking about sandwiches and doing the will of God and his food. And then all of a sudden Jesus says, here's a point on the harvest. You think there's four months and then the harvest is coming. Yet four months and then comes the harvest. Yet I'm telling you there's a harvest right now. Look, lift up your eyes and look, this is harvest season. He's correcting them. They're still thinking about physical bread, and he's talking about a whole different kind of bread. And then he goes on, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. The saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. He is explaining exactly what's going on right here at this well. He has been sowing. And as the crowds come in just a minute, they will all be reaping. He's realigning the priorities of the disciples. 
He's telling them, as you follow me, the focus is not going to be the things of this world. It's going to be the kingdom which is coming. The removal of shame, the transformation of sinners into followers of Jesus. He's training them to be farmers, to work together for a spiritual harvest. Do you hear the central lesson? I think it's ringing right now in the ears of the disciples. Jesus is pointing them to evangelism, to sharing the good news, to the priority of living water and spiritual food as the centerpiece of joy for the Christian. This is what gives Jesus joy and energy. It's proclaiming good news. The question is, how how much do we speak of Christ? We are quick in this life to speak about the things that we love. It's true of all of our hearts. The things that we love naturally bubble up and flow out from our mouths. How much of that is utterly consumed with Jesus? How often in conversation do your thoughts and your words turn to our Lord Jesus Christ? The goodness of his gospel, his absolute grace. Have you ever had this privilege that they're witnessing right here with this woman? Have you ever seen a sinner go from death to life? Have you ever watched and listened to them as they process, oh my word, I had no idea. It's an incredible thing, like watching a baby be born, you're watching spiritual life happen. There's nothing like it. It will fill you with joy. How can we begin to apply this? How can we begin to get this kind of joy in our lives as Christians, longing for spiritual food to do the work of our Heavenly Father? I think one real simple lesson is listen. We can be better listeners. When someone is speaking, that's what Jesus does very well with this woman. He listens to her. He really hears her. He's not already framing his next argument. He is listening to her and her life and her thirsts. I think we, Grace Presbyterian, can offer a listening ear to the world. Think before we speak. The world expects us just to to, to fly off with all their answers and they haven't even asked questions. And listen to our co-workers, friends, really listen to our neighbors, share their anxieties. We're going to hear a lot that's wrong, for sure. Maybe we should focus on what's right and good and beautiful and go there and point them to our Lord Jesus Christ. As a community of disciples here in Shreveport, In Bossier, we are invited by our Lord into a harvest. Are we sowing gospel seeds 
Are we enjoying seeing others come to Christ? Eyes open and ears open to the gospel. We're invited into this joy of Jesus. And lastly, we see a fruitful harvest. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. When Jesus was telling the disciples about these reoriented priorities, he said, look, lift up your eyes. Behold, the fields are white with harvest. What do you think was going on at that moment? What was he talking about? He's very specific. He's telling them to look at something. That's not all allegory here. I think he's looking at the harvest of people. He's seeing the woman, the woman who was at the well, leading all these people she was ashamed to be with, leading them down the road to him. Look. Guys, you keep talking about lunch, but look. Lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. Here come people asking for a Messiah. Could this be the Christ? Here they come. Isn't this intriguing? Who is this who would know everything about me and not reject me? What an appealing offer. They all knew how bad she was. He knows everything about you. And he listened to you anyway, and he interacted with you anyway, and loved you anyway. A whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of Samaritans coming down from Sychar to meet with Jesus. It's interesting that the text says many Samaritans from that town believed because of the woman's testimony. What's your testimony? What is your witness? Part of hers was that she had been trapped in this sin and covered in shame, and yet the Lord uses that very thing and his grace coming in to transform her, uses that very reality in the lives of others who are just astonished at the grace of Christ. You ever think to yourself, my testimony is shameful. I could never talk about who I was and the way that Jesus changed me. And I'm not saying glory in your past sin. I am not saying that, but consider the glory of Christ and what he has done to transform you from death to life. Others need to hear that. She had a past. Sorted, certainly her present was sorted. She was living with a man she wasn't married to and Jesus came to her. By the time it was over, she was announcing good news to others. He knows me, and he did not reject me. What did God get you out of? Has the gospel transformed you? Has the good news of Christ shaped your past and your present what do you have to glory in in Christ that you could share other, with others this good news and hope? No doubt with this many people in a room, some still live in a lot of shame. 
alcohol, drugs, lies, pride, envy, covetousness, disrespect of parents, sexual immorality, poor choice after poor choice, shame for the things that you have done, shame about things that you have done or things that have happened to you, abuse, feeling used and not loved, Listen to this woman's testimony. He knows it all. And he still came to me. Far from being dismissed by the town, precisely because of what they know happened to her, they are drawn to come and meet this Jesus at the well. Far from piling on more and more shame, now she's utterly shameless. She has been set free, and she goes and announces this freedom. God can transform our story just that fast. Taking it from a sense of shame to a sense of glory. From a reason to make us high to a reason to make Jesus known. We're given another shot here as the Samaritans themselves from this town ask Jesus to stay with them. That is shocking. Samaritans asking a Jewish rabbi to stay with them. And it's more shocking because he does. He stays with them two days. Talking about king and a kingdom. He shares his life, giving word with them. Notice the close to the narrative. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. This this woman from the well simply got their attention. She's not saying, hey, I'm the focus. It's really good what they say about Jesus right here. She is not the focus. Her story is not the focus. Jesus is the focus. His love, his ability to save, his being the savior of the world. Again, does our speech ever get around to Jesus? When we converse with others, do we ever focus on ourselves or do we focus on Jesus? Listen, we all have lost family members and friends and co-workers. And we cannot save them. As much as we might long to, we can't fix them. We can't cover their sin. We are not enough. The conversation never gets around to Jesus. It is not the gospel. One reason I think this passage is so powerful begins in midday heat. Shame. But there's a woman and a a man standing by a well and we can expect life. We could expect a harvest. That's exactly what we get. 
It goes from this desperate situation, Jesus' thirst, the woman's thirst, and now we have a huge harvest. We see life. It ends with this. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Do we know that? Is that our profession today? Can we say with these outsiders, with certainty, he is the Savior of the world? And how did we go from one bleak image to this full white harvest of many coming to know the Lord Jesus? It's Jesus was moved towards a sinner. He went after her. He initiated this whole conversation with her, opening his heart with her in compassion. Not disgust, not pushed away, knowing her sin, knowing her reputation, knowing what was in her heart. He didn't go away. He moved toward her in love. Isn't Jesus great? He's so much better than you and me. Then just as promised by all those building blocks that we saw in the narrative, life, we see life, spiritual generation, rebirth, the rebirth of this woman and many Samaritans. Earlier in John, back in the prologue, we read this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I wonder, as John penned that, if this is one of those places that he was remembering, we saw glory that day. We all thought this was about lunch. And then suddenly we saw the glory of Christ on display. Have you seen that glory? Have you entered that joy? I pray that it would be so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful text. Lord, despite all of our confusion about water, our hunger for food, would we be satisfied with you living water? Would our excitement and joy be to work your works in this life or to fill us with that food open our mouths and our ears with others to listen well and speak good news and hope transform our hunger we pray in Christ's name amen